Well, good morning, church. It's great to be back. I don't know if all of you know, but uh, Pastor Michael and I were uh, blessed uh, by you guys uh, to be able to attend uh, the Shepherds Conference this uh, past week in L.A. Uh, what a wonderful time. It almost seems like that's the, that's the headquarters uh, for the, the faithful. Uh, you know, just the joy of sitting there and to hear the, the wonderful preaching and, of course, the singing. Um, just to really be encouraged, they, they really spoiled us uh, down there. And so on behalf of Pastor Michael and I, I just want to say thank you. It is, of course, uh, a great blessing to be back. Uh, the theme of that uh, conference was shepherding the remnant. And, you know, that is, that's the priority, right? Shepherd the flock that is among you. The precious remnant of Emmanuel Bible Church. So it's a, just a great, wonderful privilege, again, to be here in, in the pulpit to share that uh, with you guys. We are in the text of 1 Samuel this morning, chapter 13. I'll read the first seven verses to get us going. 1 Samuel, chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Saul lived for one year, then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Father God, we just thank you for this, this text that you've given us this morning, Lord. Uh, there is much here, uh, but there is much to learn. And Lord, we ask that you guide. You guide. Would your Holy Spirit guide us, Lord? Your will be done, Father God. We thank you for this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, jumping, I guess, in the middle of uh, 1 Samuel this morning would uh, probably be helpful if we had a little bit of context uh, to go off of. And I want to provide that to you uh, before we begin. So as we see, as we jump into chapter 13, Saul is king. Well, I guess if you don't know, but I will 
just provide a summary. How, how did we get here? Well, before Saul was king, there was this man who was named Samuel, right? And he was judging Israel. Well, Samuel was old, and his sons began to rule, and, you know, Israel didn't like his sons. They did not think that they ruled well, well, and they were unfaithful sons, yes. But the people of Israel complained, and they groaned against God, and they made that request known to Samuel. Give us a king. We need a king. So God did just that. He granted their request. In fact, in the Hebrew, the meaning of Saul is to mean asked of God. He granted them their request. However, in God granting their request, it was not that Saul would be his anointed one. No, the Lord was answering on behalf of the people. God's anointed one would come from the tribe of Judah. We would learn of that earlier in the book of Genesis with Jacob's blessing. The scepter would not depart from Judah. But for this time and this season, and the complaint of Israel rose up to God and he answered. You know, if we turned back a couple of chapters, we would arrive ourselves in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Right, Saul would there be anointed by Samuel. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed to you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So he was anointed king. And then... Later on in this chapter, he was proclaimed king before the people. We see that in verses 17 through 19. Now Samuel called the people together, right? The people of Israel, this place called Mizpah. And he, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdom that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Well, they have their king. Well, it's not long after Saul has been anointed king and, and he begins to take reign that he encounters his first battle. Now, of course, right, we all know that from other portions of Scripture, Saul had the appearance of a king. He's a handsome man, tall, stood head and shoulders above the rest. He looked like a king. Well, he encounters his first trial as king in 1 Samuel chapter 11. There was a challenge against this group, the Ammonites, right? A pagan nation who did not know God, and, and they began to invade this uh, territory, Jabesh Gilead. Now, that would be a territory that would belong to one of the t 12 tribes of Israel, this half tribe called Manasseh. So he would rally his troops, said Saul would, would muster the Israelites, and, and they would actually strike down the Ammonites. A victory. So afterwards, 
what happens after that defeat in 1 Samuel 11, 14 through 15. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's important to know of of why they are in Gilgal in the first place, because that's where our battle scene starts in chapter 13. But in between 11 and 13, Saul gives, or I'm sorry, Samuel gives his farewell message. Samuel is getting up there in age, and in chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. Samuel would go on then to begin to, begin to rebuke Israel for their unfaithfulness, and also in their unfaithfulness in asking for a king. And, and the people realize, and, and they are, they're struck by this, and they call out to Samuel and say, you need to pray for us. We've done wrong. And he does that. And he responds graciously in this wonderful reminder to Israel in chapter 12, verse 20. This is what Samuel's word is to them. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have all done this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. A gracious, gentle reminder even though we know that they would not stay there. Well, this is where we begin right now in in chapter 13. Now, I I have titled uh, the text uh, of this sermon, A Father and Son Divide. And really, that's really what I want to unpack in this chapter, uh, I guess a, a chapter and a half. It's just to show this, really the difference in the decisions. And, and the text will make this clear. It's going to unfold it for us. The decisions of one man, right? The father, Saul. And then the decisions of his son, Jonathan. Well, as I just read here in 13, 1 through 7, we see where they are at. Right, And we see what Saul has before him, his army. It says he has 3,000 soldiers and, and 2,000 are with him. The other 1,000 are with his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is in the region of Gabeah. Saul is situated in Bethel. So it actually starts off with this geographical divide. Right? In the region where they're at, Michmash, they're, they're divided in regions, armies, 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan. They are situated in this region, about seven miles north of Jerusalem. So what happens? Well, Jonathan wants to fight. And he goes, as we see in verse 3, it says this, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. I like to read that last text. The Philistines heard about it. 
they were upset. Now, a garrison would be this military post. And this would not sit well with the Philistines because Jonathan had defeated them. Before I unpack this further, we have to know a little bit about the Philistines and and the enemy of Israel who they are up against. Now, the Philistines are probably somewhat familiar with us. We know about that guy, David, and his enemy, Goliath, was of the Philistines. We might know about Samson a little bit in the book of Judges. When Delilah yells out, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And then Samson would do what Samson would do and beat him up until he was unable to beat him up because he gave in to temptation. Well, the Philistines, their origins uh, come from this place called Kaftar. Now, this was an island or, or coastal region out in the Mediterranean. Kaftar uh, would later be synonymous with this island of Crete. If you think about Crete, and you can envision the Mediterranean, you can kind of see it out there. Well, we know a little bit about Crete, or I guess the people, I would say, of Crete. Uh, they're mentioned in Titus 1, the Cretans. Here's a little bit how they are described. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Right now, that's centuries past the, the Philistines, but we can see that definitely fits the description of the Philistines. That was their origin and, and continued to be so. But here in, in, in this context, right, their origin was from that island, but they would make their way to this area along Israel. And if we can picture Israel, uh, the Philistines would hold the southern end in a region called Philistia. It would be along the coastlands. And they were, it says that they were experts in weapons. You know, they had the ways of extracting iron from the hillsides, from the mountains. And they would form the best of weapons. Right? They were men of war. They were a people of war. They loved battle. And so they had perfected the art of war. And this was reflected in their, their armory and the weapons that they held. Now, we also know that they were not followers of the one true God, right? They, they worshipped many gods. In fact, they would carry them out into battle. Some of these gods you might recognize, Dagon, which is half man and half fish, Ashtra, the, the goddess of fertility, Belzebub, who the Philistines believed to be the lord of the flies. He was kind of control over all the pests of the land. We learn about later in, that Belzebub is in the New Testament, uh, the ruler of the demons. Now, the Israelites did not like the Philistines. And they would call them derogatory terms such as uncircumcised Philistines. And why was that? Because Israel was given the covenant of circumcision. They were set apart unto God. Not so much for the Philistines. So this is, this is just a little bit of a background and to where we're at, where we're situated, and who Saul and, and later Jonathan are up against. Well, first and foremost, we're going to look at the decisions of Saul, because as we make our way through the text, that's where it's going to find us. 
So envision this, right? Jonathan has just defeated this garrison, this outpost of the Philistines. The Philistines are mad and they are beginning to gather. So in verse 3, what does Saul do? He blows the trumpet. Saying, let the Hebrews hear. Right, so Israel was gathering for battle. Now, this is going to be an intimidating scene. Because the Philistines are not few in number. The Philistines mustered to fight with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore. It's no wonder the Hebrews felt hard-pressed and fled to the caves, right? They are running. They are scared. And because of that, now we are going to find us, right? I guess if I, had, if I was going to lay out an outline and say how many points I had, I, I guess I'd just say, hey, what point number one, let's look at the response of Saul. And point number two, we're going to look at the response of Jonathan. Well, let's see how Saul responds. Right, his people are first, right, fleeing. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, and the people hid themselves in caves and holes and, and whatnot. There's also another problem. When we move to verse 8, he waited, he being Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So back in chapter 10, verse 8, after Samuel had anointed Saul to be king, he, promised, he made a promise to him. Give me seven days. Give me seven days and I will meet you at Gilgal. These were the words of Samuel. Then go down, he told us to Saul, then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Well, this is day number seven, and Samuel hasn't showed up. Well, Saul's going to make a decision. Let's see what he decides to do. Verse nine, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Bad choice number one for Saul. Impatience, impatience and waiting on God. I mean, we can look at that and say, well, wasn't he impatient not to wait for Samuel? True. True, he was impatient not waiting on Samuel, but we know his greatest sin was he was not waiting on God. And it might have been awfully close to that seventh day, right? It actually says seven days in the text. Samuel had told him he'd be there in seven days. So maybe it's six days and three quarters. It's really close. But Samuel still hasn't showed up. So Saul makes an offering. Now, I have to make it clear that, that the greatest sin is not the offering itself. In fact... Later in Old Testament scripture, faithful kings such as David and Solomon, they offered sacrifices and were not found to be in sin. So the sin itself of the sacrifice was not the issue. 
It was a trust ultimately in the Lord that, that Samuel gave him a promise. But it was waiting for God to deliver. You know, it kind of reminds me of that famed story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Genesis 22. Abraham was called by God to do this. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Wow. As they make their way up the mountain, these are the words of Isaac to his father. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Abraham had to trust in the Lord to provide the offering in a very scary situation, not knowing all the details. For Saul, it was very similar, right? But instead of providing the offering, the Lord was just going to provide the guy to do the offering. But Saul did not wait on God. Bad choice number one. I guess bad choice number two, he did not ask of God. He did not ask of God. We see this in verses 10 through 12. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know, as soon as he makes that offering, what happens? Samuel shows up. I think that's almost comical because that's always how it is once we make a bad decision, right? We feel the guilt. We feel the guilt. Oh man, he's here. And then not only that, right? What, what do we tend to do once we realize our bad decisions? We start making excuses. Right? Saul is making excuses. The people were were scattering from me. You were not here. You said seven days, Samuel. I had to do something. But what he did not do is call upon the name of the Lord. I think Samuel gave a, a great evidence and, and an example of that's how a leader should do it. Remember, Samuel was a judge. And, and Samuel actually came across very similar circumstances in 1 Samuel 7. He would model for the people how he was to react in 1 Samuel 7. This is what Samuel did in a very similar circumstance. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered and missed, for the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, 
Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But this is what happened. But the Lord thundered with the mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were defeated. Samuel asked of God. It, it, was, it was one thing for Saul to make a, to be impatient, but isn't in his impatience, he, he failed to ask of God to, to be like Samuel and cry out to God. I need help. So it resulted in bad consequences. Well, what happened? What happened with Saul? What was the result of, of these consequences? If we go down to verse 15, after all this, Saul numbered the people who were present with him. 600 men. So remember, we started this chapter with 3,000. So now we are down to 600. His men left him. His men left them. They, we saw that they were scattering to the caves, to the holes, to the cisterns. But not only that, of the men he had, of the 600 he had, if we go to verse 19 through 21, this is what his men were doing. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his sickle. They were charged for doing this. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and the setting of the goads. So on that day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hands of the army except for Saul and Jonathan. So consequence number two is his army has dwindled down to 600, but also he's lost full confidence in them. Why? Because they're going to the enemy to sharpen their weapons. The weapons, I can almost see it. The Philistines laughing at them. They're just about to use them. We're just about to destroy you, but we will take your money before doing that. And then the worst consequence. The worst consequence. That would come earlier in Samuel's rebuke to Saul, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He forfeited the kingdom. He forfeited the kingdom. You know, there's, there's a couple of applications in this. Right? Sometimes our, our, our greatest lessons are from either our own mistakes or seeing those who made grave ones themselves, certainly this would have been the case for Saul. If we look at his circumstance here, 
we would say, yes, the mistakes were numerous. I think we can identify with our patience being tested. Right? The Christian life is one of patience. It is one of endurance. If you have children, you know your patience is tested every day. Multiple times. But in that long pursuit and continue to follow the Lord, it requires the patience. Maybe scriptures come to mind. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Matthew 6, 25. Christ tells us to be anxious for nothing. Romans 8, 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then out of Psalm 30. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If Saul would have had patience. And then secondly, seeking the Lord, it would be one thing right in our impatience and in times of, of frustration to make quick, rash decisions. But there is a help to that, and that is calling out to the Lord. We can see that here, a great application to seek the Lord and, and, and to call out to Him. I think this is very much takes place in our lives, is evident, right? When, when people around us are beginning to get afraid and, and start to scatter and quit, right? This was happening with Saul's own people. They were scattering. They were, they were quitting. We can look more personally at us and say we can look around us and see those maybe even closest to us who are abandoning their, their relationships, their marriage, the responsibility of their children, and say, I'm just going to be just like them and make a quick decision. And not seek the Lord. When people are running from responsibilities, that is the time, at the most, that we must seek and call on the name of the Lord. Sometimes it's just a loud cry, Lord, help! Well, that was Saul. That was Saul. I, I want to look now at his son, right? right? This is the father and son divide. So we saw Saul. Let's now look at Jonathan. At Jonathan. If we pick it up in 1 Samuel 13, 15. Right? Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward beth And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. We learn about the weapons, right? Saul's people were running to the Philistines to sharpen them. We understand that. Look down to verse 22. So on that day, the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, this is the start of... Now we're getting into what Jonathan is going to do. 
But what hasn't changed? The situations. We can't say Jonathan was dealt a better one. And in fact, as he decides, and we're going to see here in chapter 14, he's got to make a decision because things are just getting even worse. We pick that up in 14.1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Atub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord of Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sania. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. I'm reading all this because I want to see not only does his circumstance present itself as, as challenging just like Saul, but to show that it's gotten even worse. All right, first, we know that Jonathan wants to go out. He wants to go up to that camp, that garrison of the Philistines to fight them. He's, he's looking to his armor bearer to accompany him. Well, he didn't tell his father, right? We learned that in the text. I want to explain that a little bit. It's not that Jonathan had a disrespect for his father. In fact, we would say quite the contrary. Jonathan was a very faithful son to his dad. Even to the point when Saul was not at his best towards him. We know that Saul has a history of chucking spears at the righteous. Right? He did that to his very own son when he learned, or I guess did not know of David's whereabouts. And Saul cursed at his son and threw a spear at him. Jonathan stayed devoted. In fact, Jonathan would stay devoted to his father even up to the point of war until his death. But this is, this is his situation. He's, he heads out. Now, it gives us information about the, the, the priest, right? This guy named Ahijah. I have to give a little bit of uh, information on this because this is important to know. Okay, Ahijah was a rejected priest. He was a grandson of Eli. Now, Eli comes into 1 Samuel chapter 2. Right, remember when, when Samuel was hearing God call to him? He would run to Eli. Right, that's the same Eli. Now, what had happened with Eli is that he had two unfaithful sons who served in the priesthood. And those unfaithful sons liked to sleep with the prostitutes while doing the tabernacle duties. And what had happened because of that is that they were rejected. They were rejected priests and no longer allowed to serve in a faithful way. So God chose Samuel. Well, Ahijah would be a part of that rejected priest line. So this is who Samuel, I'm sorry, Saul brings in to help him. The rejected priest. Because what has happened, Samuel has left. Samuel is gone, and so to replace that, Saul brings in the rejected priest. Additionally, we learn about these rocky paths. Why would, why would Scripture contain that? 
I think for one very good reason. Man, you're going to have a climb to get over to those Philistines. Almost seems impossible. And that's exactly what it was to portray. You hear the word bozes, which means kind of a a shiny or gleaming pass. I'm not much of a rock climber, but I imagine if you're going to choose a rock, you're not going to choose the smooth one. The other one, described as sine, which would mean thorny, very sharp. This was an impassable pass. This was... The the expert rock climbers wouldn't choose this pass. This was the pass that Jonathan would have to go over. And you know what? Here's the memory verse. Here's the memory verse of this whole section. It comes to this in chapter 6 of chapter 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. As one commentary would put it, that's a billboard statement. He had a full faith and trust in what the Lord was going to do. But not only that. Right. We knew he was looking. Not only would he jump out in this faith, he was going to ask of God. We would see that in verse nine and ten. Right. He's going to let the Lord lead as to whether or not he's going to attack the Philistines. Jonathan says this, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still on our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come, go to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign for us. So it was going out in this great amount of faith, but it was also allowing the Lord to lead. Let me just remind you of the challenges that Jonathan is facing right now. The Philistines are numerous. They are surrounding him. He is about to cross an impossible pass with one guy. Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree with a bunch of rejected priests. You have a small, deflated, scared army using farming tools for weapons. Do not tell me we do not serve a God who is mighty to save when all odds stacked against us. This was Jonathan. Nothing in his favor. Nothing in his favor. And he goes. He goes. And as he's, cro- as he's passing that rocky pass, as he's passing that rocky pass, this is what happens, right? The, the Philistines call up to him. They know this is the sign of the Lord. Verse 13, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed each of them. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, Half a furrow's length and an acre of land. (laughs) The Lord gave them into their hands. Impossible odds. Not only that, it gets better after they defeated these 20 men. 
Verse 15, and there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. An earthquake starts. And guess what? Saul, who's been sitting under the pomegranate tree, sees this and feels this great trembling. Can you almost picture this? And he's looking around. Where did they go? That's 16 through 19. I'm not going to read it. Where did they go? He calls out to his priest to say, oh, help me out. Oh, never mind. Crazy things are happening. And this is what Saul does. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. It ends there in verse 23, the, the wonderful conclusion to this. So the Lord saved Israel that day. There's lots of application from this decision by Jonathan. You know, in this faithful decision to move forward, we have to make note, if we go back to verse 7, Jonathan wasn't alone. Remember, he brought his armor bearer with him. This was the words of his armor bearer in verse 7. And his armor bearer, said to him, Jonathan, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Application point number one. The Lord is never going to leave us alone when we go out in faith. I don't see the insignificance that he had a friend with him. Proverbs eighteen twenty. But there is a friend that sits closer than a brother. Proverbs 27 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You guys see that, right? When we choose these, these monumental tasks. I really think, I mean, really in, in, in regards to faith and serving the church, he sends a friend that will stick closer than a brother. Amen for that. But also application number two, don't be surprised when more rally around you. Don't be surprised when the army comes to help. And that's what happened in verse 20. Those who were scattering and hiding in caves and holes came out. Right? And sometimes it just takes one. Sometimes it just takes one to go out with that amount of faith. And that level of confidence and say, I will see the Lord at work. And notice that Jonathan necessarily didn't know it may be that the Lord will work for us. For Jonathan and his friend, they could have been killed. I don't know how the Lord is going to work today. But guess what? For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He knew that the Lord would save whether or not he would choose it that day. He did not know. But God chose to save that day, and the many 
rallied around him. And then in this magnificent, tremendous way, he sent an earthquake, right? He sent an earthquake to awaken those. I think this is, this is very evident because there's something that we can relate to very much for Saul and Jonathan. Now, we live amongst the Philistines. Now, we live amongst the Cretans. And you know what? Our Lord says, Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to Father who is in heaven. Right? Maybe we, we live amongst the unbeliever. Maybe the, the unbeliever is, is a spouse or our children or our workers or wherever out in society. But we would live in such a way that we would bring glory. You know, what is also fascinating is that we can't say that Jonathan had great relationship with his father. His father, Saul, the unbeliever, that he's like, even for my dad, I'm going to live for the Lord that he might see and glorify God. I can say and say with great confidence that on that day, even the enemies who fled knew that it was a power and might of God that was at work. We see the Lord causing that through earthquakes. For on that day of his crucifixion, it was the Roman centurion. Surely this was the son of God. People might know. And people might know, and it's sometimes it's just the ordinary, right? The ordinary going out. I want to close with this. The Lord saved Israel that day. You know, um, one of the striking things of... Uh, this time at this conference was the word we heard over and over again. And it's remnant. It's remnant. God's chosen few. The remnant is not many. It's not mighty. We are the weak and the few. For the remnant, dear church, we will be saved on that day. On that great day of the Lord. And he didn't send an earthly king like Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. No. Genesis 49.10, the scepter, the ruling authority would not depart from Judah. No, we serve a king who is eternal. The very lion of Judah. The one who came to save. The one who hung on the cross at Calvary for you and for me. And say, put your trust in me. Enter your life out. Cast your hopes on me. Turn to me for forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. I will give you life anew. Those who become part of the remnant. Those who have put that, that ultimate hope. I, I plead with you that day. This is the hope for all who would look to that glorious cross. I see this story pointing to something greater, don't you? That great lion of Judah. So we serve. So we serve. We serve faithfully, demonstrating the faith like a Jonathan, and continue to move forward, knowing that he will provide we know, right, it's, oh, it's all going to come to its final end one day, right? Oh, on that glorious day, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. 
Oh, God, be the glory to that day. To that day, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Praise be to God. Be reminded this day of this promise. Let us pray. Father God, your word is like a lion. It speaks so truly. Lord, help us to see your truth this morning, God. We are not the many or the mighty, but you, O God, in heaven are great. To you we look, to you we hope. In Jesus' name, amen.